Our scripture is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again to you in the name of Christ, and we pray that you'll teach us by this word of Christ and the spirit of Christ to believe in what is here. And grant to us to be able to repeat and to emulate the kind of faith that Abraham had. Increase our faith and teach us, Lord, greater in a greater way who you are and the God in whom Abraham put his trust. Teach us this, Lord, and teach us to do your will no matter what you teach us and no matter what you command us. May we always desire to do your will and to please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this case, with Abraham in Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, we come to a concluding passage with Abraham. You might remember that Abraham is the most prominent example in Hebrews chapter 11. More time is spent on him than anyone else in this chapter. As well, in other places in the scriptures, whether in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 12 to 25, or whether in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4 is primarily about Abraham, or even Galatians chapter 3 is primarily about Abraham and the relationship of Abraham to God and the covenants that God made to Abraham and following. Abraham is a model. Now, a question that we have to ask ourselves. This test that God presented to Abraham was the most difficult of all the tests he presented to Abraham. It was the most difficult. Could you imagine God commanding you, God, once you are convinced it was God speaking, could you imagine God commanding you to put your own son on an altar, slay him and offer him there as a burnt offering, only after God said that everything I ever promised to you is going to be fulfilled in that son, and through him there will be many physical descendants, and through him there will be many spiritual descendants, and through him will be the ultimate Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the seed of the seed of Abraham, or a descendant of Abraham. God made all these promises for this life and the life to come, for this present life and especially for eternal life, all said to Abraham, and then said, put him on the altar as a burnt offering. What would you do? What would you say? What, once you know that it was God himself. So there's no doubt that God is speaking. If we are convinced that God is speaking, would you obey God? What is this passage teaching us? It's not only teaching us about Abraham's faith, which is important for us to emulate, but it's really also teaching us that if God wills it, if God says it, if God commands it, if you know it is the wisdom of God, then we must believe it and we must obey it. Mm -hmm. 
We must believe it and we must obey it. Let's see that to be the case with Abraham. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Once more, we see that the apostle not only introduces faith as the premise or as the basis for Abraham's actions, for Abraham's obedience. We have seen this to be the case with all of these saints of the Old Testament so far and that for the rest of the passage. The premise is that we have true faith and then that true faith leads to obedience. Whatever does not proceed from true faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So anything we do, even if it has the air of religion, even if it has a superficial coating of religion, of spirituality, if it's not done in faith, in true faith, then it is worthless, it is corrupt, it is an abomination that we offer to the Lord. So it has to be proceeding from true faith. That's what Abraham had. And that's the faith that he mentioned in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the kind of faith that Abraham had. Remember, this true faith is a gift of God. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. There is no single work or no accumulation of works, whether 10,000 or 100,000 works. It doesn't matter whether one or 100,000 works that will ever save us from our sins. It's only by true faith in Christ, death and resurrection on our behalf. That's the only true faith. And this faith comes as a miraculous gift of God. Not something that we produce, not something that we generate. It does not originate in man. It descends from heaven as a gift of God. That's the faith that Abraham had. And because he had that faith, he offered up Isaac. We have to observe that sequence of events. So many people do not understand that. They think that it obedience or works, including faith, and they put faith in the category of this kind of work, it's something that we must do, it's something that we conjure up, no matter what sins we commit, as long as we do these good works, then the good works outweigh the bad works. That's what people think. They, they think that if they commit sins throughout the week, they can show up to church, and then whatever they do in church, hocus pocus, their sins are forgiven, and they're fine with God, and then they can continue the rest of the week and sin as they please. That's what people think. But that's not what true faith is. True faith leads to obedience, the desire to obey God and to please God. Furthermore, it says in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, when he was tested, this is what it says in Genesis chapter 22, as we read earlier. It said that God tested Abraham and then commanded him to offer his son. God tested Abraham. This, therefore, is proactive. This is God not reacting to something, but God who is producing something or showing something, demonstrating something by this test. Abraham did not think of this on his own. This test came from God. It wasn't Abraham who wanted 
to be tested this way. It was God who wanted to test Abraham this way. Not because God did not know what was in the heart of Abraham. God knew what was in the heart of Abraham. But God wanted the heart of Abraham to be manifested on the outside for Abraham to see, for Isaac to see, and for all the world to see when they hear of this incident so that they might be like Abraham and have true faith in God. Furthermore, a test is given to us to purify us, to purify us, to remove that which is impure, that which is unclean, that which is sinful in us. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Just turn a couple of pages to the book of James. James chapter 1 and verse 2. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James tells us to consider it joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Because we know, we ought to know, that the testing of our faith produces endurance. It's necessary for us to be tested, constantly tested for us to endure. And when endurance has its result, perfect result, we're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we are in that condition, we lack nothing. We are perfect and complete. Verse 12, James 1:12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We are blessed when we persevere under trial because when we are approved, as we read about in Abraham's case, God announced to him that he had done well in obedience to the will of God. What is the result of this? The crown of life which is promised to those who love him. And another place, 1 Peter. A couple of more pages over in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. Having explained a bit about our salvation, he says in 1 Peter 1, 6, In this, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There in verse 7, he says that the proof of our faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. We know that gold and silver and other elements are placed in the fire in order to purify those elements. And he's saying that that's what happens to us in terms of our own faith. It must undergo testing and purification so that when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ as the outcome of our salvation, uh, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, this is what Christ wants to see. 
He wants to see us more and more purified by the test that we endure, the test of our faith. Abraham was tested. Further, it says, verse 17, he offered up Isaac. Offered up Isaac. When he says he offered up Isaac, we know from Genesis 22 that he never actually put him to death. He offered him up on the altar. He put him on the altar. This is what he means. Isaac did not literally die. He almost died, but he did not literally die when he placed him on the altar. Think for a moment now. God commanded Abraham to put his own son on the altar, and Abraham was ready and willing to bring down the knife to slay his son and then offer him there on that same altar on top of the wood as a burnt offering. That means he would have lit the fire and his son would have died in the fire or further died in the fire, perished, completely consumed in the fire. This is what Abraham was willing to do. Now here's where it becomes difficult for most people. Have we considered that whatever God wills is righteous and it's good? Whatever God wills is righteous and good, whether or not it's pleasing to our own mentality, whether or not it's palatable to us, whether or not we have figured out all circumstances of truth and justice and love and mercy and grace. Have we considered that thought? Because otherwise in the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel 16, 20, God condemns the people for offering up their sons and daughters on the altars to other gods. He condemns the people and he says many times in the prophets, I never commanded you to do that. It never even entered my mind to tell you to do that. Why are you doing that? This is a blatant, heinous sin against God and you're doing it to idols. Where did that come from? It didn't come from me, God said. Notice, in all the situations, in any other situation, it was a sin to offer up your son on the altar. But not in this case. Well, what's the difference? God commanded it. That's the difference. Another example is Hosea the prophet. Remember Hosea the prophet. Hosea was a holy man and a righteous man. God commanded Hosea the prophet to marry a wife of harlotry, to marry a prostitute. He commanded Hosea to do so. Normally, we're not supposed to do so. Normally, all of us, men and women, are supposed to remain pure until marriage, right? And only in marriage have relations. That's normally the case. And normally, we're supposed to find a wife of virtue, according to Proverbs 31. But in Hosea's case, Hosea the prophet, God told Hosea, go marry a wife of harlotry. Why? As a symbol and an example of how the people of Israel were living against God. Normally, that would have been wrong and a sin. Very ignoble to go marry a woman like that. But in Hosea's case, it wasn't a sin because God commanded him to do so. Our third example is Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 20, God told Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation who were about to go into exile, 
He told them, uh, he told Isaiah, Isaiah, for three years, I want you to walk around naked and barefoot. For three years, Isaiah, this holy and righteous man of God, a prophet of God, he told him, I want you to walk around barefoot and naked three years. Why? Because the people eventually will be attacked by foreigners, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they will be attacked by foreigners, and when the foreigners come and seize the people, they're going to humiliate them by stripping them naked and make them walk in packs and groups far off into a distant country to humiliate them and, and to sub subjugate them. So normally we're not supposed to walk around naked, right? We're not supposed to open, uh, expose our shame. But God commanded Isaiah to expose his shame for three years. So when God wills something, he tells us to do something, whatever he says, we must be re ready to obey with diligence. Isaiah did, Hosea did. We can cite other examples. And even Abraham. Abraham Knowing it was the will of God, he had faith and he desired to obey God and to do the will of God. This is a truth that very few people understand. Very few people understand, understand in faith in order to believe it and obey it. The moment people hear something like this, Abraham offered his son Isaac. Why would a loving God, a just God, a righteous God, a holy God, why would he even have the thought, let alone the words come out of his mouth, and let alone let Abraham go this journey, a three days journey from where he resided to Mount Moriah to put his son up there. And why would God get so close and risk that Abraham would bring his hand down on his son? Why would God do all that? People are so offended with the God who would do such a thing. But people who are offended at a God who would do such a thing are actually worshiping an idol. They're not worshiping the true God. They're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Because if they are offended that Hosea would marry a wife of pottery or that God would command Isaiah to walk around naked three years and open his, uh, in shame, in three years, show his shame, and even Abraham criticized this incident with Abraham and Isaac, these people do not even believe in hell because hell is much worse. Hell, which exists forever and ever for those who reject, who, 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 disobey, who are sinful and those who reject the gospel if they hear the gospel, the hell is forever. Do they really believe that there's a hell? Because hell is much worse than walking around naked three years. Hell is much worse than marrying a prostitute. Hell is much worse than this, putting Isaac on the altar. Hell is much worse than any of those kinds of things. Let us know the word of God and be willing to believe it and obey it in whatever it says. Further, it's so astounding that Abraham was willing to put Isaac on the altar because of the next clause. It says in verse 17, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. See how incredible that is? He who received the promises. The promises God had said earlier. Remember, Genesis 22 is after all of the promises and all of the statements and all of the words that we find from 
chapter 12 to 22. Chapter after chapter after chapter, God is reiterating all the promises he has made to Abraham. Abraham received promises that all the nations will be blessed in him, Genesis 12, verse 3, which is a spiritual promise that because of Abraham or through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed through him. In Genesis 15, he said that your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven. And then he said that they're going to be enslaved, physical descendants, they will be enslaved in a foreign land that's not theirs, and then after, in the fourth generation, I'll bring them out of that land, and then they'll come and dwell in this land, in the land of Canaan. He made physical promises to his descendants through Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so forth. The physical promises would take place. But also, and most importantly, thirdly, is the spiritual promise of a physical descendant of Abraham, who is Christ our Lord and Savior. Galatians 3.16 said, citing a passage or alluding to a passage such as Genesis 22.18, and in your seed all the nations shall be blessed. Who is the seed that God meant that would be a blessing to the nations? Galatians 3.16. Let's turn to that and read what he says. Remember, Galatians 3.16 is quoting or alluding to a passage in Genesis 22, verse 18. Galatians 3, 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. God told Abraham in 2000 BC, that's when he lived, God told Abraham in 2000 BC, 2000 years before Christ was actually born into the world, that one of your descendants, one of your physical descendants, will be the Savior of the world. He will be the Lord from heaven. He will be the second person of the Trinity. He will be the one who lives a perfect life, his obedience throughout his life, and obeying all the way to his last breath on the cross, this perfection by the Son of God, by the one who was fully God and fully man, yet without sin, his perfection would be reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. His holiness, his sanctification, his righteousness, Christ's righteousness would be reckoned to him, which he believed in Genesis 15:6. And Abraham believed in the Lord, Genesis 15:6. And Abraham believed in the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that. Now, Paul says, and Abraham believed, that his one descendant would be Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Savior of the world. And because of faith in Christ, all the nations would be blessed. In the meantime, there would be promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes who would be the means of carrying out these promises? All of these promises Abraham received, but it depended on one son, Isaac. Isaac. He was the only son born of Abraham and Sarah. For a long time, they could not have any children. But when Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 years old, God gave them the gift, the miraculous gift of Isaac, 
and said that Isaac, in Genesis 17, 21, Isaac, I will, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, God said. Isaac. Isaac would be the one. Not Ishmael, whom he had by another woman. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Only Isaac. So, think about all this that Abraham knew. Abraham believed. Abraham received all these promises. He received these, and yet, God said, put Isaac on the altar. That was an astounding command. And Abraham, he had to, to think through that. He had to have faith in the word of God and in the promises of God that though God was telling him to put him on the altar, put Isaac, his son, on the altar, God would still fulfill his promises. God would still fulfill them. He calls him in Hebrews 11, back to that passage. In Hebrews 11, he calls him his only begotten son. His only begotten son. You remember, only begotten son is basically a summary of what God said to Abraham when God said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Your son, your only son whom you love. Your only begotten, your beloved son. Your beloved son. This is the one I want you to place on the altar. When he said only begotten, he did not mean that Abraham did not have another son, Ishmael, earlier by another woman. And actually by this point in Genesis 22, Hagar and Ishmael, the mother and the son, Hagar and Ishmael, they were driven out of the household. So the only one left there was Isaac and his wife, um, mother Sarah. So Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac were the only ones there by that point in the household because Ishmael and Hagar were driven out because Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. And I think persecuting with a, with a potential of violence. I think it was a violent potential in Genesis 21, verse 9. It says that he was mocking or According to Galatians chapter, five, uh, Galatians chapter 4, 29 and 30, he was persecuting Isaac. Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. So by this point, there is no factor of Ishmael. It is Isaac. And Isaac also, in, the, in a physical reality, Isaac is the only one there. But in terms of the spiritual realities, none of the promises were through Ishmael. They were all through Isaac. So the beloved nature of this relationship between Abraham and Isaac. That's how intense it was. That's how extreme it was. That's how important it was. And yet, Abraham offered up his only begotten son. It all hinged on him. Verse 18, he further explains us how it was hinged on him. Verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. This is a quote from Genesis 21, 12. In Genesis 21, 12, this was necessary for God to remind Abraham because it was at that point in Genesis 21 that Hagar and Ishmael were being driven out of the household because of Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. He was being driven out of the household. And so God reaffirmed to Abraham, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Really, 
Isaac is the model, not only for the physical offspring that Abraham would have, but more importantly, that Christ would come as a descendant of Isaac and all of the spiritual blessings, all of the spiritual people who would come to faith in Christ, that is going to happen based on promises, based on grace, based on the word of God, based on God's choice of, of receiving Isaac and rejecting Ishmael. Based on God, this is how it would happen. Through Isaac. Through Isaac. Isaac becomes an example and a paradigm of how everything depends on the promise of, of, promises of God, on the gracious promises of God, on God acting as a one-way one-way street or, or a monergistic one action that is it comes from heaven, God chooses who he's going to save. Isaac becomes that example. Now, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Romans chapter 9. Please turn to Romans chapter 9. Where here also we have the same verse from Genesis quoted. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. 9 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And that son is Isaac. So, verses 6 to 9, the focus here is Abraham and Isaac. Notice he says in verse 6, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, when God announces his word, it's not as though God's word is weak, it's so feeble, it's, so, uh, it's got lack of power that it doesn't accomplish what it wants to accomplish. It accomplishes what it wants to accomplish. Because you, we have to understand that not all Israel who are from Israel, meaning... Because Israel, or Jacob, had 12 sons, and the 12 sons had 12 tribes, and by the time of Moses, they were in the millions who left Egypt and entered, conquered the land of Canaan. In the millions. Just because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Israel, and the 12 tribes, did not guarantee them a ticket to heaven. That's not how heaven works. That's not how the, we enter into heaven. He says, not all Israel are descended from Israel. Not all Israel are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, meaning children of God, saved children. They're not all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Remember, you have to keep in mind that this statement, through Isaac your descendants will be named, is in Genesis 21-12, in the context where Ishmael is rejected, who is a descendant of Abraham, 
but not Isaac. You see the difference? God is saying, I chose Isaac, I rejected Ishmael. That means it depends on God's choice, but it also depends on not, it does not depend on the physical reality, it does not depend on genealogy, it does not depend on the bloodline as to who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. It depends on God's choice, and he, then he creates faith in us. So verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Doesn't depend on your physical lineage. It doesn't depend on who your ancestors were. It's not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, for this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. God promised the son to Sarah because he wanted us to understand everything depends on God's promises, not on our works. And if it depends on God's promises, as he says in verse 11, it happens on the basis of God's purpose, God's purpose, God's calling, not our works. Now let's return to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 19. What else was happening in the mind of Abraham? Here the apostle by the Holy Spirit tells us, verse 19, Hebrews eleven nineteen. he considered, Abraham considered, that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Abraham did not know whether God was going to spare Isaac and stop him before he brought his arm down. Abraham did not know that. But we do know right here, this verse says, he knew that God is able to raise men even from the dead. That after Isaac was slain, and even if Isaac had been burnt in a whole burnt offering, that is, his body became ashes, that God would raise him up from the dead, miraculously, because God had already sworn, promised many times, that Isaac was going to be the ancestor of Christ. He already had sworn that. So he knew that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Romans chapter 4 also makes a similar statement. Let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. We'll start at verse 17. 417. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was also able to perform." Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned 
as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Verse 17, the promise is reiterated. The father of many nations have I made you. And how will that happen? If those nations have faith in Christ. And Abraham believed God gives life to the dead, calls into being that which does not exist. He believed that God is able to raise men from the dead and call into being things which do not exist. Hope against hope. He believed. And he did not become weak in faith, even though his body was as good as dead, and even Sarah's womb was dead. But with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's what it says in Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Raise men from the dead. Abraham believed that. And remember... What did Abraham say to his young men who accompanied Abraham and Isaac? He says, he told them to stay here, and then he said, I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return. Abraham said, the two of us are going to go yonder. We're going to go over there. We're going to worship over there, and we're going to return. In Genesis 22, we will worship and we will return. God is able to raise men even from the dead. That is what Abraham believed. And then further, verse 19, from which he also received him back as a type. He received him back as a type. When the Bible uses this word type, it means an example or an illustration a shadow, it means something like that. An outline, that is, that when Abraham received Isaac, that is, from the altar and back, he never truly and literally died, but he came back, as it were, as it were, or like in a figure, as in a metaphor, as in an illustration, he was near death, and then he was brought back from being near, nearly dead. So he received him back as a type. And why did he receive him back as a type? Why? Because the Bible, especially in Hebrews, we have seen already several places, but just one example, Hebrews 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10.1, he says that the law has a shadow and the shadow will never save anybody. The substance will save. The type will never save. It is the fulfillment of the type that will save. It's not the illustration itself that will save it is the substance, it is the true meaning of the illustration that will save. What's he saying here? He's saying that Abraham, Abraham knew 
that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead. Abraham knew that even Jesus, his own descendant, would die on the cross and rise from the dead, and that faith in Christ, Christ alone, would save him. He received Isaac as a token or as an illustration of the fact that one day in the future, Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, would die on the cross for his sins and rise from the dead. That's the way it works in the Old Testament. That is, everything that is leading up to the coming of Christ in his incarnation has to do with giving us many examples and even giving the saints of the Old Testament many examples or types and illustrations of what Jesus would do to fulfill it all. What Jesus would do. Was Isaac resistant to Abraham? It doesn't say that in Genesis 22. He wasn't resistant. Even Jesus wasn't resistant. He says in John 10, 18, I, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative and I take it up on my own initiative. Jesus, he was willingly going to the cross. Well, how about Isaac? Isaac had to carry the wood. Remember that? He had to carry the, the wood and then he would be placed on that wood. Didn't Jesus have to carry the cross? And then he was impaled on that cross that he carried. Right? Now, this is what about the father-son relationship? Didn't Abraham love Isaac? Of course he did. That's what God said in Genesis 22 too. He said, your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He called him that, whom you love. And who is Jesus called? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father says of the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It also says though, just as Abraham was willing to put Isaac on the altar, it also says in, Gen in Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased, that is the father, was pleased to crush his son, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will prolong his days, he will see his offspring, it says. Because the Father was pleased to put his Son on the cross. That is the source of our salvation. Abraham and Isaac are examples for us to follow. But what did they believe? In whom did they put their trust? Not in themselves, but in Christ. Everything that we read about is pointing to Christ. Everything that we need to adhere to has to be in Christ. There can be no true faith in God, no true obedience in the things of God unless Jesus Christ is there front and center. He is the goal of it all to the glory of God the Father. Christ and Christ alone. If Christ is absent from the equation, then there is no true faith. If Christ is absent from the obedience, then there is no true obedience. If Christ is absent from your theology, in your morality, if Christ is absent from it, then there is no true theology and no true morality. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. Abraham believed that. He knew that the things happening to him were a type of Christ. Let's do the same. Will we have faith 
and obey whatever God says. Will we? And put our hope only in Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Let's do that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.